Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Efren Perdomo-Lopez. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Efren Perdomo. I am one of the teaching pastors here, although I preach kind of like quarterly, uh, so not very often because I'm over on the other side um, herding cats with RTI. So it's good to be with you. Hey, one thing I wanted just to celebrate with you is Interactio. Uh, If you heard in the announcements, this is a live translation provided um, in this service and the next service. So in this service, we're offering Swahili and French, while in the 11 a.m. service, we'll be offering Spanish. Um, So would you just celebrate that with me? Uh, My parents, I think, are coming to the 11 a.m. service, and they'll actually be able to understand what I'm saying, so that'll be great. Um, It's good to be with you. Okay, how many of you have seen the show Survivor? Let's see some hands. Yeah, oh yeah. It is quite possibly the peak of entertainment. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the premise of the show, the show kind of follows uh, these contestants who are stranded in a remote location and uh, with a little more than the clothes on their backs. Much of the show focuses on the contestants uh, cha- working in challenges in order to re- win rewards like food and immunity from being kicked out. Uh, The kick is that every episode kind of ends with the group collectively coming together and voting one of the others out of the island. Now, as you watch, you sort of start to get this, I would say, unhealthy emotional attachment to some of the contestants. There's this fan favorite who's known as, he's one of my favorites, Boston Rob. Does anyone know Boston Rob in here? Yeah. Uh, Boston Rob is cool, calm, and collective, and he's always thinking like a million steps ahead of everyone. One of the best uh, to, do, to win the show. And uh, he's a lot like our Rob. <laughs> and I don't even think most of you caught the transition of Brian, who's on Jeff's face, because they look so similar. Well, in light of this, producers follow dramatic storylines, alliances, strategies, and hunts for immunity idols. And what intrigues me most about the show is the social experiment in it all. All the effort in building alliances, strategies, and deceiving others along the way is fueled by one end goal, one million dollars. And the question lingers for every contestant on the show. What are you willing to do for that end goal? Now, this should trigger a greater question for all of us here. Do I, do we have an end goal that dictates our behavior? Or do we just play our relationships by ear? Should a lack of reflection be concerning to us? Well, I I want to, this morning, our question to explore is how being a follower of Jesus dictates our practices and our posture in our community and our homes. But more generally, what is the end goal that dictates our behavior in our most intimate relationships? 
As we continue on in this sermon series of Ephesians, I believe Paul has provided us with an end goal in mind and also provides a practical model. Now, I am very aware that some of you in this room know the weight of our passage this morning in Ephesians 5 through 6. And here's the thing. This passage today gets very real because it engages our private life. And this passage also has been the center of controversy, hurt, and abuse, and has critical interpretive differences that leave long-lasting effects. And you may be thinking, why is uh, the passage on marriage and children given to the newlywed who has no kids? Well, there's even passages lead pastors don't want to preach. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Rob's right there, so... He said I could say the joke. <laughs> but let me be clear about my intention today. It is never to divide us further, but to invite Holy Spirit to permeate his word, my words, and more importantly, our hearts this morning. So first, let us turn to prayer. And actually, I'll have uh, my wife read uh, our scripture for this morning. But why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us as you, as we enter into the sacred space of your word. Allow us to be humble, patient, and gentle, and to not let our bitterness or our opinions overpower your whispers in your voice. Let us move in compassion, and let us move and embody love this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, church. We are going to be reading in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Spirit-guided relationships for wives and husbands. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means to love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are his members of his body. As scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Chapter 6. 
Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why don't you take a deep breath with me? There's a lot there. And as we read, I'm sure many questions clouded your brain. But primarily, what does Paul mean when he talks about submission, slavery, and the apparent patriarchy? Although not exhaustively, my hope is to engage these questions and to help us reframe and see Paul's words as good news. In my effort to protect our time, um, here's a map of where we're going. I believe Paul's intention is to guide us in three responses to reimagine, to reshape, and to redeem. You want to say it with me? To reimagine, to reshape, and to redeem. First, reimagine our relationships in light of our new identity. This section has often been titled The Household Codes, which scholars note is Paul playing off a Greco-Roman tradition of his time. This code was meant to imitate the structure of the Roman Empire, Its purpose was to inform the patriarch of his responsibility to order his household. The triad of relationships addressed can be seen in other writings, such as Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, and Plutarch. And in all their writings, their overall consensus in how to manage their household was that man rules alone and maintains order among what they believed were subordinates and who by nature they believed were inferior. It is here, in this context, that Paul has reimagined the tradition in a way that is countercultural, elevates the value of each member, and centers it on the practice of reciprocity. Uh, and before I move, I want to quickly uh, address the elephant in the room. Slavery. Now, just to be contextual, ancient slavery is not the same as American slavery that we know here in our country. Uh, Ancient slavery was more driven by economical reasons rather than race reasons. Now, does that make it okay? It certainly does not, and I hope you hear that. But I believe that Paul and Jesus' ethic Take us to a place 
where the eradication of slavery is always the purpose of God. And so here, the message of the gospel for Paul changes everything. Here are some key noticeable differences. First, beginning in verse 21, which states, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For Paul, this serves as the overarching ethic for the household code. In its original writing, the word submit is actually not even present in verse 22. Wives submit to your husband, but, but only assumed because of verse 21. You see, as members of God's kingdom, we are invited to live in mutuality, not hierarchy. The simple but powerful pronoun, one another, advances this theme by turning an assumed one-way relationship of power into a mutual relationship of reciprocity. Thus, everything that goes after it is reimagined through this principle, mutual submission. Second, Paul addresses every member of the household who held a quote-unquote subordinate position. This never done in any ancient code before. In a Greco-Roman culture that devalued the voice of women, children, and slaves, Paul dignifies them as moral agents and as active participants in how a household maintains order. This is a place where context means everything. You see, the ethical demands that to us may at, at some points read overbearing and at times oppressive were in fact affirming and empowering to all the members. Paul's placement of responsibility actually elevates their value as ultimately known by God, who in fact has no favorites. And third thing we see is the level of accountability and liability that's placed on the head of the household for provision, protection, and love. In a culture that often treated women and children and slaves with contempt and abuse, Paul assumes the servitude of the head. We often mistake the reading of a husband as the head of the household, the Greek word kephale, and submission as power plays of rulership and authority. But it's more likely that head is used as a metaphor for the source of life. This makes sense seeing that as a husband was the main provider of his home and protector, Children and slaves often experience beatings, neglect, and lack of support, and in extreme cases, infanticide. Paul, again, reimagines the relationship or which even the threat is prohibited. And both are treated with love, respect, and honor. Albert Einstein once said, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress and giving birth to evolution. I'll say that last line one more time. Imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress and giving birth to evolution. The honest question we have to ask is, does Paul's vision actually hold up? in practice, is the proof in the pudding, as it were. Early Christian history actually reveals that both women and slaves held a majority of the demographic for Christianity. 
Christianity's attraction to women was for its more favorable environment compared to the Greco-Roman society at large. And women found empowerment in opportunities of leadership, healthier marriages, protection from abortions, and then condemnation of divorce and infanticide. Even uh, Celsus, a Greek philosopher and notable critic, has this harsh statement to say about Christianity. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. Do you see what's going on? Christianity was in fact an apparent threat to the patriarchy and the powers in society. And because of Jesus' life and Paul's words, we stand on the shoulders of women and slaves who fought and progressed the kingdom God envisioned. So yeah, I would say there is proof in the pudding. And so how does this theme of reciprocity help us reimagine our roles and practices of our relationships? And to go and, and, and to that, we go from reimagining to reshaping our relationships. To reshape our practice of power towards sacrificial love. It seems that, Paul, that the gravitational center in all of this is Paul's emphasis on sacrificial love. In a framework that often was written for the benefit of the patriarch, which all other household members were meant to serve, Paul seems to reverse this responsibility. A culture characterized by power and dominance, Paul sees Jesus modeling something different for us. And here, and in light of this, power gets redefined as service and sacrifice, not dominance. I'll say that one more time. Power is redefined as service and sacrifice, not dominance. The very fact that husbands were called to love their wives was in and of itself a radical idea. And if fathers are commanded to do the patient work of discipline and instruction for their child, while masters were asked or were commanded to treat their slaves with deep respect and reverence to God. This was not an expectation of society. This, in fact, was a Christian innovation. And I want to highlight two things that I think Paul subtly does to emphasize this type of love. And uh, first, in the obligations that the husband has to the wife, Paul uses intentional terms like wash, Feeds, which could also translate as nourish, and cares, which literally means to make warm. Paul has purposely used domestic terms, or terms of domestic chores normally performed by women as a responsibility a husband has to his wife. In a culture where only men occupied high-status spheres, public spheres, females and females low-status domestic spheres, Paul has unmistakably broken down this assumed convention and actually assigns domestic service to both Christ and the husband. 
in verse 27 and in verse 29. Yet I believe the most radical thing that Paul says is actually in verse 25, where death is used as the primary symbol of love, the giving up of one's life. You see, it confronts both ancient and modern perspectives of what love means. Paul is very much challenging definitions of masculinity in the Roman time. You see, Christ's death by crucifixion was by far the most shameful act someone could endure. Taking a man's control in a situation, thus emasculating him. And yet, this is something Christ did for all of us in this room. And for Paul, it's the invitation. The invitation to have this posture toward all our relationships. You see, love is equated with humility, vulnerability, and sacrificial service. Yeah, I think... Uh, Paul was also aware of some of the very common experiences we have as humans. Our love is never more tested than in the little moments we have with the ones we love the most. Whether it's a spouse, children, family, friends, siblings, or even roommates. Every time your spouse forgets to rinse the dishes. Or when your husband snores all night. That would be me. Or when your child just randomly chooses to play with every single toy they own that morning. Or changing diapers. Or when your roommate isn't catching those passive-aggressive hints you are giving him about the trash. And why don't you, uh, what about this hypothetical situation where you and your spouse uh, work at the same place. And one of the spouses always forgets her keys. So they have to borrow yours, which inevitably leads you out, locked out of your office and having to walk all the way here to get your keys back. Hypothetically, I'm speaking. Oh, see. I'll leave these here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, I'm sure some of you are even nudging your husband, your spouse, or your children, because you will all have a list. And it's endless. And I'm sure you're all thinking of your own. Because there are many moments to choose love over self. But we also know that love gets a little bit more serious and insignificant selfless acts. When money's tight, when there's a tough diagnosis, when there's past wounds, or even when love means the death of a dream. In these struggles, we often feel protective of our identity, feeling like we're slowly losing ourselves. Yet, Christ's death challenges us to die to ourselves daily for the sake of the other. And in that irony that Paul is pointing us to is that in the death of ourselves, through sacrificial love, we actually begin to discover the person Christ made us to be. I'll say that one more time. In the death of self, through sacrificial love, we actually begin to discover the person Christ made us to be. Because sacrificial love 
It, or is sacrificial love the end goal that dictates your relationship? Where do you see it? Where do you not see it in your relationship? So in Paul's movements, we go from reimagining to reshaping to now redemption, redeem our communal witness in a broken context. After quoting Genesis 2.24, Paul states, this is a great mystery regarding the union of the church and Christ. Much ink has been spilled on what exactly does this mystery mean and how do the two becoming one actually reflect this in marriage? And I believe that Paul is alluding to the very practice where we actually reflect God's very nature. You see, love as defined by Jesus, practice in our most intimate relationships, is how we testify to the mysterious realities of God himself. John 13, 35 says, your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. You see, it begins with love for God in our marriages and in our family to the church and the world. And you see, church, when we do this well, people actually sense and experience the presence of God. Our participation of love is, in fact, a missional witness to the God we all know is experientially real. And reflecting on this verse, a move to a painting by Andre Rublev. Uh, this is an icon of the Trinity. And there's uh, sort of this word kind of attached to it. It's a fancy theological term known as perichoresis. Why don't you say that with me? Perichoresis. The other uh, service sounded a little bit better. I'll, t- I'll teach you Greek some of the thing. Just kidding. Uh, now, this word is used to describe the Trinity. Peri means to go around. Kareen means to give away or to make room. But more richly, this, this conveys the idea of reciprocity, interchange, giving and receiving from one another, being drawn and contained in one another, and drawing life and pouring life into one another as an act of love. Now, to this painting... Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Notice the aspects of this painting. Now, although their heads are tilted at different angles toward each other, their faces are identical. And each one holds a staff, suggesting they equally possess divine authority. Each member wears, blue, wears a blue robe, pointing to their oneness of being. And yet, they also wear different colored garments, indicating distinct identities. Their faces bent toward each other disclose humble submission and love for one another. And while their gleaming eyes convey peace and enjoyment. And right there, you might notice, is an open space an invitation to commune at that very same table. You see, Rublev's icon 
beckons us to enter into this circle of love through our sacrificial love for God and for each other. You see, Paul very clearly saw the significance of his theology and in the practical spaces of our homes and in our relationships because our identity in Christ demands that we reimagine, reshape, and redeem our behavior in our most intimate places to reflect the loving union of God. And much like Survivor, the end goal dictates our behavior. And we ultimately come back to this question again. So what is the end goal that dictates our behavior as followers of Jesus? And it's simple. It's the golden rule. It's to be a person of love. But not just romantic love, but love defined by Jesus himself, which is reciprocal, not hierarchical. Love that sacrifices rather than controls. Love that constantly submits to one another. So when you think of your own relationships, does your expression of love include the following? Reciprocity, sacrificial service, and mutual submission. And if not, then I invite you to the open table of love that bears the greatest weight of God's presence. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you bind us in this community into your loving dance that includes enjoyment, peace, but also sacrifice? And would we submit to you as our ultimate head who loves us and embodied the very practices we spoke on today? Would we enter into this as people who can not only know about this reality, but actually experience, sense it, touch it, feel it, see it. Would invisible realities be made visible? And in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.